You're listening to a Westpac Wire podcast. Westpacwire.com.au Families face cost of living pressures and every one of us wants to see wages growing faster. On October 6, the federal government will hand down its most anticipated budget in living memory. The COVID-19 pandemic has plunged the economy into its worst peacetime downturn since the 1930s. Unemployment is high and major stimulus measures such as the JobKeeper wage subsidy scheme are about to be wound back. Unsurprisingly, expectations are high that we'll see further stimulus and spending in the budget. But what might that look like and what does it mean for the economy? I'm Michael Bennett, the editor of Westpac Wire, and to help me unpack all of this, I'm joined by Westpac's Chief Economist, Bill Evans, who has been analysing budgets for the bank for many, many years since the last recession in the early 1990s. Thanks for joining us, Bill. Thanks a lot, Michael, and that's quite an introduction, but you're absolutely right. I think I looked at my first budget from a professional perspective in around 1994, so you're spot on. That was... That was the recession that went on and on and on. And to tell you the truth, I really only think it, it actually broke in December 1993 when, um, when Samaranch announced that Sydney had won the Olympic Games. And everything turned in the, in the Australian economy, obviously, with New South Wales being at the centre of it. But um, that was a long recession. So, Bill, I know you've just updated your forecast for the RBA, now expecting a rate cut to come through on Budget Day and another so-called... Team Australia moment, given the board meets on the same day as the budget. But first, I want to take you back to July when Treasurer Josh Frydenberg released his updates. And there were some pretty eye-watering numbers in there. I think he was talking about a deficit this financial year, so 2021, of around $185 billion. But that was obviously a couple of months ago now, and, and the world's moving pretty quick. So what sort of numbers are you expecting to come through on October 6th. Yeah, Michael, so just let's put it in perspective. So in 2018-19, um, they had a deficit of $1 billion, and they will regret that for a long, long time because I'm sure with a little bit of um, accounting gymnastics, they could have made that a surplus and they could have told the world that they got Australia back to surplus. But they didn't. It was a small deficit. But, of course, the next year, 1920, it's blown out to $85 billion. And as you say, their current estimate is $185 billion, but that's based on new, no policy changes in the budget. And, of course, that's not going to happen. It's also based on what I consider to be a fairly optimistic assessment as to how many people will remain on JobKeeper in the December and March quarters. Our number for the deficit is more around $230 billion, um, which would include around 20 to 30 billion in new initiatives in the budget uh, and of course uh, a, a further lift in the pre in the pre-policy change numbers reflecting more people on jobkeeper in particular yeah as you say they are going to be a slightly awkward set of numbers for the coalition to be talking to given they never quite reached that elusive surplus they were very much hoping to achieve but, of course, they, they didn't see a pandemic coming like none of us did. Um, in terms of announcements or the big stuff we expect from the budget this year, we haven't seen a lot of leaks as of yet. What key stimulus and spending measures do you expect to be announced? 
Well, it's interesting you say that, Michael, because we've been arguing for about the last year that they, <clears throat> the economy was quite weak anyway going into COVID. Uh, consumer spending was weak. Private demand was, was hardly growing. So something needed to be done in the budget anyway. And we wanted them to bring forward those July 2022 tax cuts. Um, because if you bring forward a tax cut, you know how much it's going to cost you uh, because it's just a change in the timing. Whereas if you provide a new tax cut, then it goes on forever. So I thought that would have been a, a sensible way to provide a short-term boost. Now I think they've pretty much accepted that that's what they will do. Uh, and that, that changes quite a few of the tax brackets. So at the moment, I think you stay on 19% um, tax until you get to um, 37,000. I think now you move, you stay on there till you get to 45,000. Then you go to 32%. Under the old system, you'd stay, you'd go, you'd stay on 32% until you get to 90,000. Now you stay there until you get to 120,000. And then from the 120,000 to the 180,000, you go on 37%. So going up to the 37, you don't go there until you get to 120,000 compared to the old 90. So what they're doing is that they're pushing you up to a higher tax bracket at a much higher income level. And that's going to help everybody. Um, there's been some criticism that it's helping the so-called high income earners, but I wouldn't say that people on 45,000 are high income earners and they will be benefiting as well as the people on 120,000. So I would see that as being important. Um, I, the other thing I think that they will definitely try and encourage business investment by providing one-off deductions on investment expenditure. So that's once again something that you can manage, contain. It's not going on forever, uh, as would be the case with corporate tax cuts. So my view is that to boost demand, it's much better giving them, giving businesses that form of investment incentive rather than actually cutting the corporate tax rate. And you want to boost demand, you want to boost spending in the economy. And then to boost household spending, you need to provide them with tax cuts. So I think that's the other thing that they'll, they're certainly going to do. Clearly there'll be an ongoing commitment to infrastructure spending. Uh, that money will obviously be usually paid out by the states. And the key thing there is getting that balance between an infrastructure project that can be up and running quickly, so provide a stimulus to demand at the time we need it, which is now, but projects are going to boost productivity. So some of the projects that, say, were em em embraced during the GFC, such as painting school halls, pink bats for roofs, etc., they created demand, but they didn't boost productivity. We need to get that balance so that we can find projects that will lift productivity, but also have the money being spent. That's a big challenge, but we're certain the government is working hard on those projects. I think finally, they will scale back JobKeeper after the March quarter. And there, I think they're thinking about more providing businesses with incentive to take on workers. So a genuine payment to a business as a subsidy to take on a new worker rather than to retain existing workers. So they'd be four of the key themes that I would expect to come through in the budget. 
But of course, as you say, there's certain to be others that haven't been leaked yet. So now is the time when we really, really scour the newspapers and scour the websites to try and get as much information as possible. Because as you know, on budget night, the Treasurer sits down from his speech at 8 o'clock and at 8.30 I have to uh, get up and analyse the budget for our customers. So the more warning you get, the easier it becomes. Yeah, it sounds like you're in for a particularly big budget night this year, Bill. But so that forecast you mentioned, $230 billion deficit this financial year, that's obviously quite a bit larger than the government's forecast. So it sounds to me like you're expecting a fairly decent amount of new spending to come through. Yes, well, I, I think there's probably also likely to be a response to the criticism around bringing forward the tax cuts, that that's for higher income earners. I don't believe that that's in any way the case, but I think that criticism will be levelled. And therefore, I would expect to see some one-off payments along the lines of the coronavirus $750 payments that we saw in April and July. I think there'll be other payments like that. But I think they're also obviously going to have to extend, I don't care what they call it, if they call it um, job seeker or uh, call it um, basically the unemployment payments that were lifted from 550 to 1150, now being scaled back to around 850. I think they need, they're allegedly going to expire at the end of December. They're going to need to extend those well into next year, almost making that a permanent adjustment because I think we understand that the the new start, which was the old dole payment, was too low. Uh, but we also need to realise that job seeker was too high because it wasn't providing enough incentive for people to go out and seek jobs. Eleven fifty a fortnight is only three hundred and fifty a fortnight below the um, the minimum wage of fifteen hundred. So I think that needs to be needs to be adjusted. And and on the tax cuts, I, I guess the other pushback we often hear is that giving tax cuts to particularly middle and high income earners is that they might save it rather than you know they, they don't have as high a marginal propensity to spend. Um, and I guess the other criticism is that it doesn't help people who don't have a job. I guess you're suggesting that because they're legislated anyway, that bringing them forward does actually help that demand picture. Yeah, and it doesn't cost them much. It's only one year. I think it's twelve billion a year. Whereas if they were one off, if they were new tax cuts, it's twelve billion forever. Whereas they've already legislated and, and budgeted in that the first the first stage of those. Um, we also have to remember that Australia has very very high personal tax rates, the share of tax represented by income relative to spending in Australia is way, way distorted towards income. We need to be mindful of the fact that our tax rates are too high and there's something called incentive. We also need to recognise that cutting tax rates right across the board boosts incentive and boosts people's preparedness to work. And that's still going to be a factor that we can't lose sight of um, after the COVID. Yeah, yeah. I guess the other one we've that get, gets a lot of debate uh, has been the increase in the superannuation guarantee. We, we heard from the Deputy Governor at the RBA yesterday that it, the jobs recovery is likely to be a, a grind, I think he, he was saying. Uh, do you have any particular view on, on 
the benefits or not of increasing that superannuation guarantee as, as it's legislated to be over the next sort of five years or so? Oh, well, that's a very uh, political question. Um, certainly, I think, as we've seen even in the lead up to COVID, the problem the Australian economy was facing was weak wages growth, which was weighing on consumer spending, which was therefore weighing upon um, on, on growth in the economy. So for me, the most important thing is to ensure that we reboot um, wages growth. And with the unemployment rate likely to remain above 7% for the next few years, um, it's going to be tough to get that lift in wages growth. So if the superannuation levy is a direct mirror image of wages growth, so in other words, if the levy is lifted, that comes directly out of wages, that's going to be a tough, a tough challenge for the economy. Uh, we understand the long-term benefits of building up superannuation balances, but just at this time, where we're desperate to lift wages growth, to boost incomes, to boost some spending, it's going to be a difficult timing to introduce that, that particular uh, next stage. And just staying with the RBA, obviously a big speech this week from the Deputy Governor Guy DeBell. You've changed your forecasts in the wake of that. You're now predicting a rate cut on Budget Day down to 10 basis points, along with some other measures you see the RBA bringing in. Pretty staggering, really, for many Australians that rates could actually get that low. So explain why you've actually made these changes to your forecasts. Yeah, Michael, look, um, the Reserve Bank for a long time indicated to us that the 0.25 on the cash rate was the effective lower bound and they had no interest in going lower. But over the last month or so, uh, there have been a number of speeches where the Governor in particular has talked about the fact that they could go lower, they could go down to 10 from 25 basis points. It was my view that that was not what I considered to be a, a really urgent policy um, uh, option for them and that they were more focused upon um, encouraging fiscal stimulus. But I think what they've decided is that, yes, they can do that. And yes, in order to be a credible um, supporter of fiscal stimulus, they need to be seen to be doing as much as they possibly can do. And so if they feel there's scope to go from 25 down to 10 on the cash rate to target the three-year bond rate at 10 and to, and to reduce the term funding rate, which is the rate that they're lending to banks at for three years to 10, then so be it. Um, and it's really they're the ones that are making the decision. And obviously they haven't told us yesterday that they're going to do that. But I think reading through the tea leaves and looking at the very, the very downbeat speech we saw yesterday and recognition that they could cut the rate, I think it's up to people like myself to interpret that um, in terms of where we think that, what that means for policy. So it's a very seductive concept, I think, Michael, that we can have a Team Australia Day on, on, on Budget Day because the board meeting just happens to be the day of the, of the budget. So at 2.30, we'll see a, a list of further stimulus from the Reserve Bank, as you say, including a commitment to buy bonds further out along the yield curve uh, with those interest rate cuts. And then at 7.30, we'll hear a very stimulatory budget. So we're seeing both, both arms of, of policy working together uh, to deal with this incredible challenge that we and all the countries in the world are facing at the moment.
Yeah, I guess it could be quite a powerful uh, moment in terms of inspiring confidence. And and the one area you've recently talked about or gotten a bit more confident about yourself is the housing market. Uh, I guess uh, lower interest rates from the RBA look like they could come through in terms of lower mortgage rates, particularly fixed rates we're talking about, um, is what, you, well, what you've predicted. Talk us through those numbers because I think you're now saying the market will probably stabilise and then could see quite a big upswing in terms of 15% at the national level. Yeah, Michael, look, I see the housing um, price cycle in four stages. So we're pretty much through the first stage, which was the fall in prices uh, in the direct response to the 7% contraction in the economy in the June quarter. So nationally, prices are down 2.7%. They're down by more than 4% in Melbourne, about that 2.7% in Sydney, uh, and nowhere near as badly in the other states. I think now, um, with these interest rates but coming down further, there's going to be a boost in demand. But that will be, and that, that will tend to stabilise prices in the next few months. But then we have to get over the hump of the deferred loans that the banks have been giving to mortgage borrowers, about $180 billion, and small business, about $55 billion. So people that are really negative on the housing market are saying that people, borrowers, won't be able to um, resume their payments. And as a result, there'll be a lot of distressed sales of properties on the market, which of course would be a major, major negative for house prices. My view is that we're already starting to see a surprisingly high proportion of people resuming their repayments, that banks are absolutely committed to restructuring loans, to being patient. They understand that a housing crisis is, given the, their exposure to the housing market, is the last thing that they want. So I think this this hump, if you like, will be pretty well managed and will come out at the end of it with possibly fixed interest rates below 2% for mortgages. They're currently around 2.3 and with these movements by the Reserve Bank in that three-year part of the yield curve, uh, they could be down below 2%. Unheard of mortgage rates for Australia. And the government will be focused on boosting the economy not on issues such as constraining bank lending or worrying about housing bubbles. So once, and the Reserve Bank will be in a similar position. So my view is that if we think about it, prices have come off, will come off about 5% in total. Uh, and if I think they're going up by a total of 15% in the two years of maybe from the December quarter next year until the end of uh, 2023, that's 15% minus 5%, that's 10% over three years at a time when mortgage rates are at record lows. I think that's entirely um, entirely reasonable. It sounds a lot, but I think the, um, the, um, the, the process to me looks like it'll uh, un, un, unfold like that. And so if we pull it all together, I guess the one thing we haven't touched on is debt. And I noticed the Deputy Governor didn't sound overly concerned about the rise in government debt that we're seeing to get through this extraordinary shock. Elsewhere, there's also been quite a lot of debate recently about MMT or modern monetary theory in terms of financing government spending. And I noticed you even mentioned it in a recent note. 
So what's your view on the risks surrounding this massive rise in government debt that we're seeing and the burden on future generations in terms of paying it back? Well, I think governments all around the world are going to be accumulating a lot of debt, but the funding cost of that debt is extraordinarily low. And so governments can manage the interest interest burden of that debt very easily. Um, most countries will have their debt interest rates being below the growth rate in the economy. And as a result, the share of the burden will be progressively reduced. Um, however, having said that, the biggest worry, and that's the worry with MMT as well, is that inflation might be out there somewhere. And once inflation starts to rear its ugly head and central banks that think they know how to deal with inflation by raising interest rates get moving, then that's when the cost of managing the debt becomes a big issue. So hopefully the generation of the inflation will be strong growth, closing of output gaps, economies like Australia growing above their potential, which eventually leads to a pick, pick up in inflation. But by then, the debt will have been significantly reduced. What you don't want is a situation where inflation turns up out of the blue, not because of strong growth, but because of some other major shock. You know, we saw that in the 70s when there was a massive oil shock that generated inflation in economies that weren't particularly strong, and that was devastating. So the problem with a lot of debt is if you get some sort of an outside shock to inflation, that means that interest rates have to be raised significantly at a time when debt levels are high. And that goes for governments as well as the household and business sectors. I can't see what that shock might be, but of course, sitting back here a year ago, no one predicted COVID either. So that's the risk with having a lot of debt is that you're very vulnerable to some sort of an unexpected major shock to inflation. Mm. And we should just quickly explain for people. So MMT is this idea basically where countries that control or have a fiat currency can essentially use their central banks to fund, directly fund government spending. There's sort of no limit to spending until, you, as you say, the inflation comes through. But as you mentioned, as long as growth comes through, hopefully that all, um, we don't need to go down that path and it all works out. So just can you wrap up with your growth forecasts for the next year? I know it's difficult with particularly border closures and just the path of the virus, but what, what, what do you expect to come through in terms of growth? Well, Michael, we're reasonably optimistic about growth in the second half of this year. Um, we do expect that Victoria will contract by 4% in the September quarter, but we're seeing pretty encouraging signs in the other states. So we've got New South Wales up 3%, Queensland up 3%, Western Australia up 4%, um, in the September quarter. So we've got the economy growing by around 1.8% in the September quarter. Then going into the December quarter, we'd be expecting to see Victoria turning around. You know, we saw what happened in Victoria in the month of June when after contracting by 7%, things lifted by about 4% in one month. So we think that even though people are feeling extraordinarily depressed at the moment, um, the case numbers in Victoria are trending in a very encouraging direction. So the opening up that we expect to see from late October will be really hitting quite a, quite a solid pace through November and December. The rest of the country, on the assumption that we don't see a second wave, 
uh, their momentum will slow somewhat, but they'll still be in positive territory. So we've got growth in the second half in the final quarter of around 2.2%, so 4% for the second half of the year. Then things will start to slow down um, as the momentum from the original reopening starts to fade. Next year, we're only looking at growth of around 2.5%. And that'll mean that by the end of next year, the economy will be operating at around one percentage point less than it was at the end of 2019. Uh, and that probably gives you a feel as to how we can expect things to be at the end of next year. Better than this year, but still not back to where we were used to the economy being at the end of 2019. Well, Bill, thanks for that. It's going to be a massive budget, um, and I look forward to your analysis on the night. Yes, that's going to be quite a daunting, daunting subject, particularly if our forecasts for the Reserve Bank don't come to pass at two thirty on Tuesday, and we spend a, we spend a few hours trying to trying to work out what went wrong, and then straight into a budget. But I'm optimistic that, that won't turn out to be the case. Oh, we've got you. We've got our fingers crossed for you, Bill. Thanks, Michael. That's all from us today at Westpac Wire. For more, head to westpacwire.com.au.